Hello, this is Don McPherson, your host of 12 Geniuses. For season 10 of the podcast, I am interviewing a dozen futurists about what life will be like for humans 30 to 50 years from now. Today's guest is entrepreneur and futurist Elisha Abate. She is the founder of The Future of Now and is a keynote speaker on the topics of leadership, resilience, and the future of work. In our discussion, Elisha paints a picture of life in 2073 with a focus on what work will look like. We start with a conversation about purpose, then we dive into the future of gig jobs, how an aging population will make talent scarce, and the likelihood that taxing AI and robots will fund social programs in the years to come. We finish the interview with Elisha's advice to leaders and future leaders who want to prepare themselves and their teams for the future of work. Elisha, welcome to 12 Geniuses. Thank you so much for having me. I am really excited to be a part of this conversation. Fantastic. Let's jump in. And a very simple question with a very complex answer, I'm sure. Can you paint a picture of life for humans in 2073? With the advent of AI, and we are still in an advent, meaning, you know, 50 or 60 years on, plus the spike of what's occurring right now, many and most of the things that today we consider work will not exist as such. And So anything, certainly right now already on the horizon, anything cognitively repeatable, shortly anything physically repeatable and or dangerous will no longer exist as jobs and opportunities. And so when you look at what, there will be a transition period of opportunities that will be available to us to sort of continue on this old school second industrial revolution model of work and working where we show up somewhere eight to 12 hours a day. But beyond that point, I think comes the invitation of what are we doing? How will we discover our purpose? And how will we allow or invite or (laughs) be told by artificial intelligence? What is our humanity and what is our purpose? One of the things you said is repeatable tasks or repeatable jobs. And could you just give some specifics around that? Yes, absolutely. So we're we're still in a point where robotics has not yet met artificial intelligence at its level of sophistication. So things that dexterily require more sophistication will likely take a little bit longer when we're talking about repeatable tasks. So pipe pipe fitter is a great example of that. But now we're looking at everything. If we root back to that original original study in 2013 for the, you know, the two guys out of Oxford who mapped all of the jobs in the US Bureau of Labor Statistics database, and they ran some algorithms to say, based on what we know about computation, what's the likelihood that jobs in X industry will be computerized or taken over by robots? And so when we look at cognitively repeatable tasks, sales, customer service, when we look at libraries, when we look at postal services, all of these kinds of things that have customer facing, you know, the bank tellers, all of this is shifting the way of the dodo and will sort of disappear. When we're looking at physically repeatable tasks, of course, those that are dexterily more, less complicated now, but that will, as robotization becomes more and more sophisticated and as as nanorobots will be able to take the place of large clunky machines, I think we begin to shift that enormously. I've worked in sales for a long time, over 20 years. I I ran sales and marketing for a previous company that I worked for or what I can say is in agreement with what you're you're talking about is repeatable transactional sales will be displaced. Problem solving sales, especially novel problem solving sales and working collaboratively with a client 
that is not going that that's going to be in high demand. Do you agree with that? Correct. That will be in high demand for a certain period of time. So one one of the things that when, when I first kind of started my future of work journey, one of the books that that I began to read was this. It's a book by Tyler Cohen called Average is Over. And this was I like I want to say now this was our back in 2014, 2015 when I picked it up for the first time. But it's, I like how he maps out how to think about what the unfolding job shift is going to look like. So if we look at a, at a normal bell curve, but we shifted over to a, a right skewed curve where the people who are making the most amount of money are people who are creating the technologies that are creating all of this impact. They're the people who are marketing and selling the technologies that are creating this impact. And then there's a small slice of service providers who cater to this sort of very wealthy cohort and the shift of the tail is kind of everybody else. Now, this initial dynamic doesn't take into account the massive shift that artificial intelligence is going to bring to the space right now. And when I say that, I mean, you know, it, it, when you look at sort of some of the godfathers of artificial intelligence who are now speaking out more publicly in the media space, what happens when we reach super intelligence and super sentience and these two things are combined? On some level, it's an evolution of who we are, but never in the history of planet, at least as I'm aware of, has a more more intelligent, more sentient being not been in charge or <laughs> largely sort of managing, but for better or for worse, those who are less intelligent and sentient. So what happens in that shift? Do you think that we reach AGI by 2073? Yes. Really? So I'm clearly an op optimist about all these things. I still truly believe that humanity can leverage all of these technologies that exist to create more abundance, more opportunity, better quality of life, longer lifespans for everybody. That said, I do think, you know, what is the dynamic of disruption? Stuff needs to get disrupted. Systems need to crumble. Things need to change in order for something new to come out at the other side. And so I think we will move through a period of large-scale economic disruption, political disruption. When, we when we're looking at lack of access to opportunities, we start to look at challenges or, or the possibility of large-scale civil unrest as we move to and through a more peaceful society on the other side. And we will experience that unrest in the next 50 years. I think we're looking at 20 to 30 years, we hit the big disruption peak. The stuff is going to be chaotic. And then we can move to and through what's waiting for us on the other side. Now, at the risk of offering several answers to what does 2073 look like in this meantime, I think there are ways for us to divert against or around this negatively disruptive force. That said, I think it's going to require global conversation that's willing to align around some of the larger paradigm shifts that are happening. So when I talk about this, I talk about moving from a world of or to and or scarcity to abundance. And a part of the or to and is recognizing that we aren't solo organizations or corporate structures or individuals creating impact in the world, but rather whatever I'm doing over here has infinite ripple and impact in multiple places around the, the universe, frankly, that we may or may not be able to see immediately. That's the direction that I've been going in personally, and that humanity is a single entity, and I'm a cell, you're a cell, and we should be operating in the best interest of humanity. I just wonder how we get there. 
if the past of work or the past of business was Milton Friedman and the business of businesses business and we're extracting shareholder value, no matter the cost to humanity or other spaces, what we're doing is we're shifting over to a world where the business of business is creating value value in a much broader sense. And we're starting to see, and we have for several years, right, with the advent of B Corps, with the SEC now requiring, even though it's a broken model, that companies report their ESG progress. So some of the measures are coming into place, but we all we need to do is look at Rianne Eisler's book, The Real Wealth of Nations. I don't know if you're familiar with her work. Not, no. But so she she shifts the conversation of where we derive and define economic value from the market economy solely, the market economy, the government economy, and the illegal economy, sort of traditional economic speak, to now include community labor, to include unpaid household and family dynamic labor, to include the environment as a resource of the economy. I don't remember where I saw it the other day, but some studies said that most of the companies who are now operating at maximum profitability, if you were to include the, the environmental resources that they're extracting... You know, their balance sheets basically start to flip on their heads, right? And so if we take this economic value and our definition of it, and we begin to shift it into a contemplation of overall value and ensuring that humanity not only survives, but continues to thrive, then the fundamental business structures start to shift. How we evaluate things shifts. The very definition of GDP continues to shift and on and on and on. I had a conversation with Ufuk Tarhan. I'm not sure if you know who she is. She's a futurist out of Turkey. And she's been on the show a couple of times. A really fascinating person to talk to because it's a different perspective, right? You have the Asia, Europe perspective. And, and, and she talked about currency and social scoring. And I wonder if you, you see a shift in how we keep score with the work that we do and, and if you can see a, a future where we are being scored through a social scoring system as opposed to just receiving money for the work that we do. Sure. Yeah. So I think in today's conversation around the future of work, it's actually separated or subdivided into two conversations. One is the future of work and the other one is the future of working. So when we look at what we are reading in most popular press today, I would actually define that as a future of working. So how is this thing that we call work enabled by technology? Where are we physically doing it? Do I receive a paycheck or do I receive, you know, or am I sort of an entrepreneurial person out in the world generating value in that sense? So that's that's one component of it. But when we look at the future of work and the societal definitions around economy and value generation, and I also think sort of the fundamental underlying question or problem of scarcity that has driven Western economics you know, since the days of John Locke and Adam Smith, that's an assumption that was overlaid on society that doesn't necessarily hold true when we start to part and parcel these things away. And so when we look at how we, the value exchange of you know, work for salary, I think if we're looking at a broader picture and broader perspective, that begins to shift. And then if robots are now robot or some version of robot, be it large language learning models or artificial general intelligence or an actual robot are doing most of these tasks, then value generation, well, that there are a lot of underlying assumptions there, but we'll just go with this for now. Value generation is the scope and span of it also needs to be expanded. 
I'm curious what advice you'd give to parents of young children in terms of preparing their children for the future of work. And it doesn't have to be out 50 years. We're talking a long way from now, but what should they be learning? What skills should they be developing throughout their primary school and, and then secondary school? There's a term that I use through the work that I, I deliver called regenerative resilience, which is this notion of not only being resilient, but in and because of the disruption that we're facing, we actually come out better, stronger, more evolved, more expanded. So developing that capacity. And that's as simple as you know turning left or right <laughs> on the way into work. It's getting somebody into an improv comedy course. It's taking folks out into nature and learning how to you know, adapt in spaces that we aren't familiar with. And thinking about business and growth, I would look at entrepreneurial thinking. Currently, the data will tell you that the best predictor, at least in the U.S., the best predictor of long-term financial growth or, or gain is having a college degree. However, the skills of the entrepreneur are critically important for everybody. So if the past of work was salary, the future of work is entrepreneurial. Whether we are required by an organization to have entrepreneurial skills, whether we are a 1099 or a freelancer or gig economy worker, or whether we're creating a scalable unicorn of some kind. These things that you mentioned, I think they're incredibly valuable and in short supply, but, you know, particularly the resilience and the, the ability to adapt to massive rates of change. And I see, well, currently mental health crises among our young people and clearly the rate of change is not going to slow down. And so I wonder if you feel that the mental health challenges that we are facing right now will continue to grow and then how we should combat them? Short answer, yes, they will continue to grow because the speed of change is accelerating. And whether you're plugged into the actual technological components of it or not, we'll draw the parallel with the second, third industrial revolution when you know factory workers who grew up in towns, I, I'm, I was born and raised in Detroit, and so you grow up in a town where you're told that if you just finish school early, you know, go to the factory and work, you're going to be taken care of for life. Well, that when that goes away, people are left with the sense of where do I belong? What what is work, particularly in the U.S. again or in Western society? Work has been so intertwined with our identity, with our being, as opposed to our doing. And until we can help shift the collective narrative. Think we're going to experience mental health challenges. And so, how do we begin to mitigate it? You know, if I could wave a magic wand and redesign school curricula, I would wave a wand around leadership development. You know, how we understand, train, and fuel our leadership needs to shift dramatically. Again, because our brains are capable of processing all of this. So, how do we move business beyond the brain? I want to ask you about. Uh, demographics, particularly aging populations in the United States, in China, in Japan, in parts of Europe, we have aging workers who are going to live long, long lives. And it seems like if we are going to continue to meet the demands of work today and in the near future, we're going to have to attract populations to do the jobs that need to be done. And that includes immigration. And so what do you see on the horizon? And we can keep this to, to the United States, but there are a lot of people who are listening from around the world. What do you see in terms of a, a shift, a potential shift in immigration policy? 
So immigration policy, and I would even say if we just take a few steps back from that, where is our global workforce spending time and how do how is it connected? And this is one of the things is I when I got into studies around the future of work, this shift in global workforce population for me was one of the three dynamics that I found most interesting, both because of the aging population component of it, but also because of the global nature of the workforce that we now have access to thanks to advances in technology. And so while China, most Western countries, the population pyramid is inverting on itself, there are a couple of dynamics. One, with longevity comes, and health span, comes expanded cognitive capacity. So people will be able to and will want to work longer. Not in France. Well, I just, you know, I'm playing a little bit of devil's advocate, but a month or two ago, there were riots around the extending the retirement age in France. And not everybody wants to work. Some people do feel entitled to retire at 59 with the idea that they want to live to 89, 99, 109. So they want the benefit of a longer life, but not necessarily the, the requirement that they're going to have to contribute to the workforce. Yes, also correct, right? So, but as, so as we're looking at this dynamic, that then adds into the combination of what, what are we looking at in society as creating and sustaining value? You know, because when we have folks living 20, 30 years beyond projected times for social security or pensions being paid, now we're looking at economic crises. So this is one of those or to and challenges where the, the solutions are co- will come when we think about the problem as a larger challenge as opposed to just where am I going to get my pension or what's going to be happening. But taking this back to the the global workforce, uh, Africa as a continent is very young, very young. And so rather than thinking, where is my workforce going to be in my westernized country or in China? How do we expand the global workforce? How do we begin to connect or create talent pipeline opportunities for people all over the world? Thanks to the advent of smartphones, and I think there are now more actual smartphones on the planet than there are human beings, because some people have more than one. And thanks to large language learning models and machine learning, right, we can have instantaneous translation. So literacy, if we can teach folks business logic, we don't even need to be literate anymore. We don't need to speak extra languages anymore, although this is all full possibility. But so when we start to think about the global workforce as a global workforce, This is yet one more place where we can help shift the economic dynamics of the entire planet by creating more economic opportunity for all. One thing that is on my mind and has been on my mind for a few years, and I haven't heard a lot of people talk about it in the United States, but when I went over to Germany a few years ago, a friend of mine and I were chatting about it, and that's the taxation of robots and the taxation of AI, obviously, to support our social systems, social security, et cetera. Where do you see that going? Is that a, a non-starter here in the United States, or do you think that that is a possibility at some point? I think that it's a possibility at some point, and I think it needs to be because we're looking at the technological disruption that's happening. So the dynamics as we move from first to second industrial revolution, from second to third, from third to now, the fourth that we're in, the dynamics themselves cause momentary disruption fallen productivity, but overall increase in productivity and abundance over time for most people. This is how the dynamic works. But the devil, of course, is in the details of how how these transitions happen. And the 
average level of education. This comes from uh, Frey's book, The Technology Trap. So he was one of the co-authors of that original future work study. But he talks about how in the second industrial revolution, even though there was job loss for some, the average level of education that was required for somebody to take advantage of these new opportunities was a fifth grade education. So these were opportunities that were available to most, really. And as we shift over into now the new opportunities that are being created, you know, those statistics that now I think they're a couple of years old, but 85% of the new jobs that will be in 2030 have not yet been created. So there's all this new opportunity, but it requires minimally a bachelor's, if not a master's or something more sophisticated in terms of education. So this gap between someone who is leaving a workforce and then potentially being replaced at scale and this is another reason why I got into this future of workspace is what happens when you have unemployment in mass with no access to opportunities, not cool stuff. And so having UBI plus taxation of robots plus educational programs in place to help people bridge the gap is a way for us to get there. I think we, we, Taxing AI needs to be at the center of AI slash robots needs to be at the center of this dialogue and conversation. You mentioned UBI, universal basic income for people who may not know that term. I, I want to ask you really quickly about the gig economy. The gig economy, do you what does that future look like? The career model that I teach is I call it a mosaic career where we take a few steps back and ask larger existential questions around what we want to create, the kind of impact that we want to have, and how we want to use this resource that we call life. And from that, derive the things that we value and then exercise our abilities, capabilities, and more technical skills in fulfilling and living into these things that we find most important. And that allows us to do that. So why this and why the gig economy? Because you can create for yourself four or five different streams of income that if, you know, as in the pandemic, hospitality shuts down. So, okay, if I can no longer operate in a hospitality space, where else might I be able to put my skills and resources to use so that I don't get so shockingly impacted by what's occurring? So I think it will continue to grow. And I'm hoping that legislation and taxation legislation will catch up to this force that's such a presence in, in the market and in the economy. What advice would you give to leaders or future leaders to help them prepare themselves and their teams for the near future of work? First thing that I would do is understand that the game of leadership has shifted. And I'll go back to this linear exponential quantum sort of way of thinking about things. And you can think of linear thinking is as incremental, it asks the question, it's a past-rooted question, what can I logically do with what I've already done and what I already know? This is a data-driven question. This is how most of the global work world works. We do projections based on what has happened in the past. We project out some future and we lock and load against that. All right, now we shift over to exponential organizations. These are what I call data-informed. And so data-informed organizations ask the question, given that we're here, free of constraints of the past, what do we want to create? We've seen movement in this with design thinking over the last several decades. This is a much more nimble, agile kind of an, an approach to things. When we're looking at quantum emergent dynamics, so what happens in a world where we don't know where we are and we don't know where we're going? We need a compass of some kind, or we need to be able to orient to the present moment. And this asks the question, I call this being data receptive. 
So it's developing the practice of being data receptive, which is right now in this very moment, what's emerging from the market or what's emerging from our clients or what's emerging in this space to then be able to interact with it. And so being able to nimbly move among those three questions, you know, not throwing the data out the window or all the data folks start throwing hate up. But what we're doing is we're combining all three so that we're much more robust in how we can not only manage, but thrive in this time. So I would say develop that capacity. And then second, this notion of regenerative resilience. Right? So, and regenerative resilience being divided up into clarity of who we are, what we're up to, why it's important and how to protect those boundaries. Fearlessness. So that same embodied practice that we're talking about, how do we get out of our heads and into a grounded space? How do we learn how to name, define, and challenge the assumptions that we have about what's happening in the world? Because if we lock on to the isness of what was, we're going to miss what's here and coming. And then finally, connection. How do we truly connect with each other as human beings to create solutions as opposed to focusing on problems and challenges? Thinking about how we contribute value as opposed to extracting value. And then the third thing I would say is something that I call simultaneous strategy. So in the past, we were able to focus on either now producing results, right, like for Wall Street, for this moment, for this quarter, or look at future innovative kind of thinking. We're going to need to expand our cognitive and our team's capacities to do both and simultaneously all the time. Because there's so much that's new that's coming, we don't have the luxury of waiting several years or months. So the, I was with some of the leaders in the AI community just a few weeks ago, and it's basically like one day of AI is 30 days of regular business. And so, you know, what Peter Diamandis will often say is, right, in the future, there are businesses that have adopted AI and everybody else is out of business, right? <laughs> Either you're in or you're out. That's kind yeah, of where we are with yeah. it. And so that ability to do both and becomes critical. And then there's a second piece. So that's how we develop ourselves cognitively. But there's a second piece here that I would be remiss not to bring to the table, but it's how we're interacting with and programming and coding artificial intelligence. So anyone who has access to it, anyone who's programming it, anyone who is working with it in any way, shape, or form, there's, it's equated to a three-year-old toddler at this point, a three-year-old toddler with access to all the information in the world and no emotional intelligence. Well, what happens to three-year-old children or children in the early developmental cycles when we abuse, neglect, and ignore them? Best case scenario, they become adults who are who need a lot of therapy. <laughs> worst case, they become society's worst individuals. And so we are quite literally shaping this consciousness and this, this intelligence right now. And so how are we interacting with it? Who is doing the programming? Right? So more women doing programming and more folks from the global south <laughs> programming in because right now the bias is largely Western, largely white, largely male. And so shifting this to to create the possibility of a future where we are where we are all truly thriving. I want to wrap up this conversation about work with something that you mentioned earlier, and that was purpose. And that the, the future of work will be very focused on purpose. And I, I want to push back on that a little bit because I, I don't disagree with you. I actually agree with you. But the purpose of many people in the workforce right now is to provide for their family, regardless of what the work is. So I may be a truck driver. I may be in a profession that will be 
replaced by technology or largely replaced by technology. But my purpose is to provide for my family and I'm going to go out and do that. I'm going to drive 800 miles and, and that's going to be taking care of my family. We are going to have to re-examine purpose and that's a difficult thing to do. How do we do that? I think it's through the lens of curiosity because what we're asking a lot of people, and again, this is where Western notions of purpose and Eastern notions of purpose are differentiated. So on on some level, it's being open to other ways of doing things in general as they exist already today. But in the West, we we tend to look at purpose as what is this future thing that I'm creating and how am I going to get excited about it and live into it or fulfill it or, you know, purpose of taking care of one's family, existential in being, but still at some point it's, it's, it's kind of future focused and related. Whereas Eastern sense of purpose looks much more at, am I present? Am I here right now in this very moment? Because this is all there ever is, all there ever was, and all there ever will be. And so First, it's just inviting an exploration of what that shift is and and what it looks like. Then I think it's second, and you know, I, I invite everybody, if you haven't had the pleasure of diving into the great Joseph Campbell and all of his work around the hero's journey and why it is that we're really here, right? Not the the meaning of life, but the experience of being alive. How do we, how might we use this opportunity to become the most, the best of this thing called humanity that's possible and accessible to us that because of the economic challenges and old barbaric ways of doing things, perhaps were never accessible to us before. One thing that is hard to accept for many people, I'm assuming, is that this future is a world of abundance. And we live in a world of, of abundance right now. We, we do. It's just not distributed appropriately. There, there's enough to go around. But I think that's why a lot of people will have this, this difficult time shifting from, I provide for my family, that's my purpose, to something that's a little bit, it's just different. They have to feel comfortable with it, that, that this world of abundance will happen. Yes. And the, the, you know, on some level, and the, this is that dance between, okay, so globally, infant mortality rates are lower than they've been. Access to water, literacy, these markers that we look at as advances of humanity overall in general are still better for everybody. However, if I'm a someone, and again, this goes back to my, one of my personal motives for being involved in this conversation. It's like if you've been told that your life at the factory is going to be taken care of and handled for you, and then all of a sudden that goes away, that the whole world is abundant means absolutely nothing to me. (laughs) And so this is where I think in our notions of societal interaction, and we talked touched on this at the very beginning of the conversation. We moving away from the individualist thinking to how do we ensure everybody comes along? How do we utilize these fantastic advances in technology to ensure that everyone truly does have access to opportunity? That because I'm losing my job today doesn't mean that it's forever, you know, my potential to earn, my potential to provide, my potential as a human being is forever gone, but rather shifting. 
These conversations with futures are fascinating because we look out into the future. I want to take the lens of somebody living in 2073 and look back at what we're doing today. So the question is simply, what are we doing today in 2023 that the humans of 2073 are going to look back and just shake their head in disbelief? There's desked workers and there are undesked workers, right? So, and most of the planet does is doing jobs that do not require them to sit behind a desk. So these jobs that are extremely dangerous, brutal physically, have high mortality rates. We're going to look back and say, oh my God, the same way that we look back at slavery during Egyptian times or like, what were we even doing and thinking? So I think that will be a wonderful advance here. Secondly, around medicine, we will look at current surgical practices as barbaric, absolutely barbaric. And then on a sort of office future of work space kind of note, having synchronous required physical workspaces for people to come and work during X amount of hours because someone said so or because someone's afraid of losing control of something or perceived control of something, we will look back on and go, oh my God, it's such backwards thinking. I want to ask a follow-up question on the the barbaric surgeries because I just had my hip replaced and an amazing experience because for five years I'd been in, in constant discomfort. I, I don't like to call it pain. And then four days later, all pain is gone. You know, it's just it's just remarkable. And and the pain was the only the incision those four days. So, you know, what do you think about that. How is that going to change that that process of putting in a metal spike into my femur? <laughs> are, are we just going to regenerate the the bone? And I, I mean, that just I was hoping to hold out for that, but I couldn't take it anymore. Yeah. So, so like, oh, I love that you brought this to the conversation because that that's kind of this dance here. Right? We can just hold on for long enough. So much more will be available to us. But the, we are shifting, and I'm hoping, you know that as an industry thing shift, but we'll say research is shifting, the world is changing, technology is advancing in such a way that we can be preventative in so many of these these things that we don't even need to get to the place where we have to have surgery, right? Like the minute, whatever the initial injury was that happened to you way back in the day occurs, you have nano robots and stem cell therapy that will go in and repair you very, very quickly, rehab that's much shorter, and then you don't have to wait. You simply are healthy right then and there. The the future of medicine and healthcare is so exciting. Elisha, this has been a fabulous conversation. Thank you for your time and thank you for being a genius. Thank you for listening to 12 Geniuses. We will return next week with another futurist who will paint a picture of how life on Earth will change over the next 30 to 50 years. Thank you to Richard Jocelyn for producing this show. To subscribe to 12 Geniuses, please go to 12geniuses.com. Thanks for listening, and thank you for being a genius.